Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we're going to endeavor to unpack the mystery of Russia. My guest is Gary Lockman, well-known historian of esoteric culture who has been on New Thinking Aloud many times in the past. Viewers will know that Gary has written books about Carl Jung, Emanuel Swedenborg, Helena Blavatsky, Rudolf Steiner, about the Hermetic tradition, and many others, including, of course, Dark Star Rising, his book about politics and the occult. He is recently the author of The Return of Holy Russia, Apocalyptic History, Mystical Awakening, and the Struggle for the Soul of the World. I know for myself that uh, Russia has often been referred to as a riddle wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in an enigma, and now we are going to attempt to unpack that riddle. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Gary. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. It's always a pleasure to uh, talk to you, Jeffrey. And I'm so excited about your book. I'll tell you why. I myself am 100% Russian Jewish ancestry. So, oh, well, there you go. Yeah, this is really yeah, an eye-opener for me to uh, delve into the uh, various uh, uh, labyrinths of, of what it means to, to be Russian in today's world. And uh, really, your book has opened it up for me more than uh, anything else I've uh, actually ever encountered, not that I've encountered a lot. Uh, but uh, I, I guess it's strange because Russian history isn't nearly as ancient as Greek or Egyptian or even Roman history, and, and yet it's so very complex. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's only over uh, a little over a thousand years old. I mean, give or take a century or two. Uh, but yeah, it is nothing but. Um, it's almost as if it, it is history rather than it has a history because it has everything. It has uh, all these apocalyptic moments and and you know vast migrations and catastrophes and revolutions and uh, assassinations and all of that. And there never there never seems to be a quiet moment. Although it does seem to. Um, fluctuate between these sort of kind of times when there's a kind of uh, somnolence about it and then a sudden sudden eruption so it's uh, quite the roller coaster ride and one of the interesting points that you maintain is that uh, an important part of the russian identity especially today is this idea of eurasia a a kind of synthesis of east and west yeah this is uh, an idea going back uh before the, uh, well, just around the time of the Bolshevik Revolution. And there were some um, Russian intellectuals who um, weren't happy with the Bolsheviks. Uh, they also didn't like the Tsar. And um, they thought that the revolution would be short-lived. And they left Russia and uh, became exiles in Europe. And they had this idea that once the um, revolution collapsed, which they felt 
sure it was going to fairly soon, they would return. And what they would return with was this new identity for Russia, in the sense that it's not a European country, it's not a cousin, a kind of backward cousin of, of Europe, which it's usually been considered, but it, it's a completely different and unique and original civilization uh, in itself. And they took this notion of Eurasia, and it's supposed to be, you know, the land stretching from basically, you know, the, the eastern part of, of Europe all the way to the Pacific and all of that. And um, yeah, it had its own culture, it had its own identity, it's had its own destiny. And um, that didn't work because the Bolshevik Revolution didn't collapse. Um, but uh, since the collapse of the USSR in the 1990s, this idea has come back, uh, become very popular. Uh, one of the intriguing things to me is is that uh, there's a strong thread of mysticism that runs through uh, Russian tradition, and you, of course, being a historian of esoteric culture, have have emphasized that. But there there are many different ver variations and varieties of Russian mysticism. Well, this is true, and um, it's not as if you would have to go out of your way to find it, which perhaps uh, a history of a Western nation, might, it might be something that you'd have to look for, or it wouldn't be as um, on the surface, but in Russian history, the mystical, the apocalyptic, the spiritual, the otherworldly uh, is, is at the heart of it. And um, it's, it's mostly associated with uh, their adoption of uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, but uh, there was a pagan uh, Russian um, identity and soul uh, before that as well, which today is having a comeback. Uh, again, with um, with the collapse of the Soviet um, uh, Union in the 1990s and this kind of new freedom, um, in a word, in, in Russia, uh, a lot of religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs and teachings and things of that sort that had been banned or, or making a, a comeback. And this early paganism is one of them, just as the return to the church as well. I, and I guess another important thread, uh, and I know we'll have a chance to go into more depth on all of these, but uh, there, there was a period in which R Russia was really invaded by and dominated by the Mongol Empire. Yeah, this was something that's called the Mongol yoke. And it's sort of in the 1200s into maybe about the 1400s around there. And it was, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, well, it's something that is in the mix of the Russian soul, uh, as we know it today, which um, manages to combine many, many different sort of uh, identities and characteristics and traits, uh, which you mentioned. It's, 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 it's a huge, capacious kind of uh, character, the Russian. It's able to um, embrace contradictory things. And um, some of this supposed Asiatic sensibility comes from the time when they were uh, under the Mongol yoke, and uh, this, this was the case for uh, quite a few centuries. And um, one of the interesting things about the Mongols was that they would dominate you, but they, they wouldn't um, force you to um, abandon your religion. I mean, they themselves had a shamanistic um, sort of uh, religion. Uh, Genghis Khan uh, was a Tengrist, which was a sort of shamanic uh, uh, religion sensibility, but they would allow you know, the conquered people to maintain their own. So, in a way, during the time of the Mongol yoke, this was when the fusion, really, between the Russian soul and, and uh, the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox Church um, uh, became, because it was something that they had to hold on to to keep their Russianness, as it were.
since you mentioned the Russian Orthodox Church, virtually everybody uh, knows that iconic uh, cathedral. I think it's uh, the Cathedral of St. Basil there in, uh, in Red Square in Moscow. It sort of symbolizes Russia, and, and it is a very unique piece of architecture. It also, I, I suppose one would have to say the Russian Orthodox Church is, is a unique religion, but it actually has its origins in the uh, Byzantine Church. Well, yes, it goes back to uh, Constantinople, which was the second Rome. And uh, well, there's a whole there's there's there, there's a whole myth about the third Rome, where Moscow has taken on the mantle of being the third Rome. There was the first Rome, obvious, you know, the Rome, and then when uh, that fell, uh, Constantinople, which was the um, the head or the capital of the Eastern Empire, that that carried on for quite some time, but it fell in 1453 to the Turks. And then it was that point that uh, Moscow, although it was still under domination by the Mongols and is on its way to to freeing itself, um, it took on this mantle of being the third Rome. And, it, 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 and it, that, that myth is kind of coming back into play again today uh, as, as part of this attempt on uh, contemporary Russia to embrace this, this religious um, holy identity. And, and I think to really understand it, uh, you've really laid out uh, what Byzantium meant to the people of, of that era. You know, f for most people today, the, the very concept of Byzantium is, is sort of lost in history. It's gone now. Uh, but it, at one time, it was a, a very powerful force, uh, not just a political and a geopolitical force, but uh, it inspired many poets. Oh, yeah, well, there's a famous poem by uh, W.B. Yeats, Sailing to Byzantium. And uh, for, for Yeats, Byzantium, um, it, it symbolized this kind of uh, culture, the spiritual culture that ran throughout the entire uh, society. Um, and, I mean, maybe in the sense that you would think of the ancient Egyptian society was like that, too. Something, you know, from the, from the, the everyday items of to, to the, the pyramids, there was a, a kind of... Um, continuum of a spiritual kind of sensibility. And this was something that Yeats saw in Byzantium as, as well, and it became this kind of symbol for him, a kind of a perfection, a kind of uh, holy perfection on earth. And this was how it appeared to the early um, Russians who, who went there. Um, the, the story is that uh, Princess Olga, um, who was uh, the uh, uh, mother of uh, Vladimir I, or the grandmother of Vladimir I, who would... Who would um, um, later adopt uh, Greek Orthodox Christianity as the Russian um, uh, national religion. She, she traveled from Kiev, uh, which was the Russian capital at that time, to Constantinople, and she was completely overwhelmed by the beauty, uh, by you know Hagia Sophia, the domed, uh, biggest building on earth at the time, these fantastic pillars, and just this marvelous uh, sense of spiritual beauty. And uh, she was absolutely convinced by it, and and through through all the uh, the rites, this was something that uh, really affected the Russian soul. They they were convinced of um, the the importance or the significance or or uh, uh, of uh, the Greek Orthodox um, religion because of the beautiful rites, because of the beautiful rituals, the beautiful ceremonies. This it transported them. It gave them a taste of this transfigured world, and this became a real. This is kind of the the essence, the nut of the apocalyptic kind of strain in them, because they've had a taste of this world that's completely transformed, and this they believe the whole idea of the second coming. This was on its way, and the. Uh 
Greek Orthodox Church or the Byzantium Church uh, was really part of a theocratic state in, in effect. Oh yeah, as I said, it's, it's from top to bottom. It was something that ran uh, completely through it. And I mean, there's stories of people going there that, uh, you know, I, I forget the name of the of the traveler, but he said he went and uh, I think it was Gregory of Nicaea when he, he uh, or uh, Nicaea, he, he went and he wanted to just buy a loaf of bread and it would turn into a theological argument. So there was something that it was, it, it was something that, you know, just ran throughout the whole culture. Uh, a very much unlike you know, our world today, uh, which is fra fragmented and fractured and uh, doesn't have that uh, seamless unity. Now, and another point you made that I found very interesting is that when the uh, first Russian um, state, I guess you'd have to call it, based in Kiev, uh, in effect converted from their uh, Slavic uh, Nordic pagan religion to uh, the uh, Christian church. Uh, at, at that time, many of the theological disputes that had s sort of split the uh, Roman Empire and, uh, and caused all sorts of divisiveness had, had been settled. So, so that the Russians inherited uh, a very uh, set way of, of thinking in, in which uh, people believe they had the truth. Mm. Yeah, they didn't seem to be quite the um continuous sort of disputes as you have in the Western Church and the Eastern, they seem to have adopted a dogma and a teaching. And as you say, that was pretty much set set in stone, as it were. And um, the Russians who adopted it, they saw it as their mission or their job to protect that, to keep it intact, uh, to keep, you know, to protect the holy and the sacred. And, and this, this, again, this was this notion of the Third Rome. So there wasn't, uh, there wasn't the idea about um, having any debate about the meaning of all these sorts of things. It already was there. And um, it, in a sense, um, that was very good because it allowed them to just to adopt something and it, it um, completely informed the culture uh, uh, rather than create greater schisms and all that. One of the unique features of uh, the Russian Orthodox Church or the Greek Orthodox or the Byzantium Church, uh, I guess in, in a sense they're all the same, is, is the emphasis on, on uh, the apocalypse. Uh, I know it exists uh, as well in the Western uh, Church, but it it's really seems to be emphasized in, in Eastern Orthodoxy. Well, as I say in the book, um, the Russian um, soul, it didn't give lip service to the apocalypse, which is something that you could say uh, in the West. Not to say that there weren't outbreaks of millennial um, you know, uh, 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 beliefs in different times in the West. We all know that they were. But it was something that, again, it was like very much a part of, of, of the culture. It wasn't something that sort of, um, okay, we have to make a place for this. It was at the center of it. And this is, it has to do also with the notion of resurrection. So Easter is a more important holiday on the Russian church than Christmas. Uh, and, you know, to sort of say it in, in, in a facetious way, I mean, everybody gets born, but not everybody comes back from the dead. And, and so this is like, a, this is, again, it's this whole notion of transfiguration. Um, it's, it's a kind of power over life. It's a power over this world that we are, you know, in now, this veil of tears. And it also gave the sense of direction to history, which is, um, if you think of where the Russian people are, you know, coming into being uh, ge uh, geographically, out in the steppes and all that, it's a vast kind of, you know, total horizon around you. And um, 
prior to adopting Christianity, I mean, the, the sense of time was cyclical at best. You know, it was a seasonal change and all that. And you have the nomadic peoples always constantly on the move. And then suddenly you have this notion um, by one of the peoples being adopted of a kind of straight line in history. And there's a direction that it's going to. And uh, this apocalyptic f fervor, it's, it's, it's tied up with, well, the, Nikolai Berdyev is one of is the Russian philosophers I write about in the book, and he says the Russians, uh, they're, they're not a people of, of compromise, they're not a people of the middle path, it's either yes or no, one way or the other, so it's either the millennium or the abyss, and so they're always sort of going back and forth between kind of the collapse and catastrophe and the sense of, of, of a rebirth, and there's something in the soul where the the rebirth won't happen until the old is 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 you know washed away is 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 knocked away and so this whole notion of the apocalypse this this the collapse of this false world around us giving way to the new world this is something that's very much a part of their whole belief. And, and I'm under the impression that this kind of apocalyptic thinking is is very active today in the minds of uh, uh, Russians and particularly Russian leaders. Well, I mean, there's. Uh, one person uh, in the book that uh, I, I mentioned, I, I, I wrote about him uh, a bit more in uh, my previous book, Dark Star Rising, uh, which is about you know Trump and occult politics. But it's this uh, fellow Alexander Dugan, um, who um, has ha had has had one of the strangest trajectories in in in, in modern political uh, culture. He started out as a in the 1980s as a um, anti-Soviet sort of punk uh, dissident. And um, I don't know if he still is, but uh, within recent times, he was lecturing on geopolitics to the general staff at the Kremlin. And so he became, you know, quite the insider from, from the opposite. Um, but he has this vision of a, a kind of coming final war between the East and the West, or uh, between what he calls Eurasia, uh, he, he's one of the promoters of this Eurasia meme we were talking about earlier, and uh, what he calls the Atlanticist um, countries or nations, and these are all the seafaring, so the Western, so the Great Britain and the United States and, and so on. And there's some fundamental elemental clash there, you know, between the solid heartland, uh, you know, the mother of all continents, uh, the largest landmass on the planet, and, you know, the fluid, ever-changing, um, you know, watery world. And uh, that, that's the democratic, liberal, progressive world, which is constantly changing and in motion and in, in becoming. And then the heartland is the land of tradition. It's the land of, you know, the fixed values and absolute values and all that. So he, he sees this kind of clash happening. Happening. And um, how much Putin himself has bought into it is, is you know, uh, debatable. But he seems to have taken on the rhetoric of this kind of confrontational sense between the sort of decadent West and, and the traditional uh, uh, East. And um, there is the sense where it's kind of like, yes, Russia is an up and coming. We're not a new nation. We're a new civilization. That's the thing. Russia is. Not and again, in, as far as I understand, in Russian history, it's always been an empire. It's only in this Russia we know today that it's a separate nation. You've always had a Russian empire. So there's always this notion of vast lands, you know, being um, under the, you know, under the umbrella of, of, of Mother Russia. And um, there's still that sensibility today. I mean, this is what sort of Russia, uh, Putin is, is, is talking about. Well, one of the ways in which you begin your book, interestingly to, to me, is you refer to an important 
esoteric metaphysical thinker about whom we've uh, talked in the past, Rudolf Steiner. And Steiner himself seemed to have a, a vision for uh, a unique synthesis of Eastern and Western culture. And he, he saw the Russians as potentially a, a vanguard uh, with regard to that synthesis. Yes, indeed. Yeah. He, uh, Steiner gave a series of lectures in um, a suburb of Paris in 1906. There was a big theosophical jamboree uh, in Paris then. And um, he was supposed to have given a series of lectures uh, in Russia itself uh, the year before, but the 1905 um, revolution uh, made that impossible. And so um, many Russians uh, came to Paris uh, for this um, Theosophical Conference, and uh, many of the leading figures in what, what subsequently became known as the Russian Silver Age. This was this period from about 1890 to um, the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution. And it was this remarkable flowering of creativity, and it was also informed a lot of mystical and occult and magical and spiritual ideas, hence their interest in Steiner. But Steiner had this vision that um, th this new cultural epoch sort of the, the first kind of uh, feelers of, of the next change, the next great shift in human consciousness, uh, um, could, uh, the beginnings of it could be seen in, in the Russian people. And because um, the West, of, the task of the West was to develop the I, the separate in individual I, uh, you know, the ego. And this was something that the West had, had done and achieved. And for Steiner, it, in a way, it had achieved it too well because it uh, had, had perfected this Western separate, distinct ego, and it had lost contact with, you know, its source and the spiritual worlds and nature and all of that. And this new cultural epoch was supposed to somehow redeem that and, and rectify the situation. He could see that happening there in Russia. And this, many of the Russians who he was lecturing to felt the same way. They felt that there was this new um, kind of religious, spiritual consciousness. And it was all about the idea of uh, this kind of integral being, uniting you know, the, the Western science with Eastern mysticism. And again, Russia was supposed to be this place where the two things came together. And, you know, yes, and Steiner talks about the sort of the masculine West and the feminine East have to come together and give birth to this, you know, this new child of the new epoch. And, uh, but sadly what happened instead was, you know, the Bolshevik revolution took place. But oddly enough, uh, in the very early days of the Bolshevik revolution, there were a lot of anthroposophical groups that were kind of fellow travelers with it. They, they thought that perhaps, um, this new age, you know, that Lenin was bringing in could could be a way to introduce some of these ideas, but it turned out to be not the case. I, I suppose it's fair to say that uh, during the uh, 70 years uh, or so of uh, communist domination of uh, Russia, that uh, although the uh, Russian Orthodox Church survived, there was definitely a, uh, an anti-religious uh, movement within the government itself. Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, Lenin um, made it absolutely clear that his, his mission or, or uh, the success of the revolution depended on this eradication of what he called inwardness, uh, you know, just eradicating the whole inner world, the whole idea there's some inner world that is some way different than the material world. Uh, around us, I mean, he was he was an utter materialist and uh, physicalist in the way there was there's nothing like the soul and and all of that. And um, so yes, the Russian the the church came under uh, great um, uh, pressure uh, and was uh, almost put out of business completely. And there was also um, this famous story uh, of what's known as the philosophy steamer. 
and um, these these were two two boats uh, that uh, on which Lenin had um, put all of these philosophers and religious thinkers and writers and historians that he um, he didn't want to just eradicate because he thought it would just the press would be too bad. But he also didn't; they couldn't be around. And these are many of these people were people that. Um, Prior to the Bolshevik sort of uh, dominance, they they too were you know uh, uh, critical of the Tsar, and they were you know trying to effect changes in society and all that. Uh, but uh, no, they were they were sort of prophets of inwardness. They were sort of um, philosophers of this notion of the spirit or something like that. And so he had to get rid of them. So yeah, that's how it started. And this is it's a in a way it's not radically different from the West the West idea of the of. Um, consciousness or the mind the whole idea is that it's tabula rasa there's there's nothing in here i mean i in a lot of my talks i say like the 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 basic western view of the psyche is it's it's like an empty flat or an empty uh, apartment then you have to go to an ikea and you buy a bunch of stuff and you bring it back and then then, then your flat is furnished so with us it's like we we john uh, uh Locke said many years ago or centuries ago there's nothing in the mind that wasn't there for what didn't get there through the senses so anything in here comes in through the senses, and Lenin was completely sold on that, as, as uh, was the West. It's just that um, you know the West turned out to be more consumerist than, uh, than Russia at that time. But this carried on um, throughout most of the uh, early days of the revolution. But um, funnily enough, by the late 20s, um, there was a very active... Uh, operation in in um, with with the communists there to study para early early parapsychological studies, and there was even this this remarkable uh, attempt by two people to get funding to go on a journey to Tibet to to find uh, you know theosophical masters who would, um, have this mystical knowledge but also had this you know mystical technology as well. So, I mean, this was actually getting funded. Uh, and there's a, the, the remarkable story of Nicholas Rorick, the great Russian painter and, and uh, mystic um, who uh, was trying to establish um, a pan-Buddhist, independent pan-Buddhist nation in, in, in the center of Central Asia uh, using the, the myth of Shambhala and all that. So, I mean, th these are stories that I tell in the book, but they give you an idea of actually what's going on at the time. It was quite remarkable. I think it's worth mentioning in, in the context of Nicholas Rorick that uh, at the same time that R Russia is turning toward a, a more atheistic outlook, uh, you have uh, people like uh, Gurdjieff and uh, Blavatsky emerging from uh, Russia and uh, sort of reinvigorating the uh, Western interest in uh, the metaphysics and the occult. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Blavatsky is a bit earlier, uh, but you certainly, uh, around the time of the revolution, you have uh, Ro Rorick, um, who, uh, well, he, he's become world famous already because, uh, you know, he, he was the, the set designer uh, and the artist for the Rite of Spring, you know, Stravinsky's ballet that uh, sort of kick-started the age of modern music and all that. And then uh, he had a very successful career as a painter. And so, I mean, he wound up living in New York, and um, there was even a skyscraper that he owned on on, on West End uh, Drive, uh, and there's a wonderful Rorick Museum there. But Uspensky and Gurdjieff, they, that, that, Uspensky's book, In Search of the Miraculous, which is, you know, this, uh, the, the basic go-to book about Gurdjieff's ideas, but it's also this wonder, wonderful adventure story of them 
fleeing this collapsing Russia. You know, they're they're going from Moscow and Saint uh, Petersburg all the way, you know, through the the revolution, the World War One, then the revolution, then the Civil War, and then they're they're washed ashore as these um, emigres on. Well, we talked about Constantinople. It was it was still Constantinople. It was about to turn into Istanbul. Yeah, and so I mean, they found themselves like like people today uh, on the outskirts of Europe, trying to get in. You know, with all the other uh, immigrants uh, from the war, the refugees, and all that. And uh, but yes, I mean, and Uspensky, Uspensky was a virulent uh, anti-Bolshevik. Um, there's a, a little collection um, called Letters from Russia, 1919. And these were letters that he wrote to A.R. Orage, who was the editor of uh, The New Age, which was this journal in, in the early uh, 1919s and, and 20s in, in, in here in, in London. And uh, Spensky was saying all these, all these Westerners were very sympathetic to the great Russian experiment and all that. Uh, let them come here and they'll actually see what it's about because everyone is just starving. Uh, you know, this uh, social um, cohesion is completely broken down and collapsed and, you know, the soldiers are shooting people left and right and all that. So he he, he had no love of the Tsar, Uspensky, because his actually his sister was uh, arrested and, and thrown into prison by, by the Tsar, but, well, not personally, but, you know, <laughs> during the regime. Uh, but he didn't like the Bolsheviks either. But yes, yeah, I mean, that, that it, it kind of squeezed all these people out. I mean, I mentioned Nicola, Nicholas Berdyaev. He was another one. Um, this um, very, very interesting character who starts out as a Marxist, but he becomes a Christian and an existentialist. So he's like a Marxist Christian existentialist. And he, um, his, his central idea is, the, what it, is freedom, this whole notion of freedom. And he's one of the ones who's on the philosophy steamer and, and booted out. So Lenin kind of squeezed out all of the um, well, the best and the brightest, many ways, you know. Uh, it's not that different in, in some ways, you know, with the Nazi with the Nazis, because all of the great, you know, Russian uh, Jewish intellectuals fled uh, Germany then and wound up in in New York or California. Yeah, you you know, one figure you didn't write about, but who had a big influence on me, who was exiled by Lenin, uh, is Pitarim Sorokin, who uh, founded the Department of Sociology, uh, or it was called Social Relations at Harvard University, and uh, I consider him to be a great mystical thinker, who, who, who even today, the American Sociological Society um, gives the Pitarum Sorokin Award to, you know, the best work of the year in sociology. Well, that'll have to wait to the next edition. I'll have to add it in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, there's another interesting thread, and um, let me couch it this way, Gary. Uh, one of, Another person who's a big inspiration to me is the filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky. Again, uh, Russian Jewish ancestry, I think, or Slavic Jewish ancestry. And, and in his metaphysical movies, he once pointed out, he said, you can't talk about spirituality without talking about violence. His movies like El Topo and The Magic Mountain are filled with violent imagery, and, and that seems to be um, uh, very deeply ingrained in, in, in the Russian mind, this mixture of uh, spirituality and violence. I think you can chalk it up to this contradictory nature um, of, of the Russian uh, soul. Uh, at, at an early chapter of the book, I, I um, write about uh, Russian man, and Russian man is, um, well, it was a theme. I mean, I, I, I referred to a specific essay by the German novelist Hermann Hesse. 
that was published in 1919. So when I was writing the book, it was a hundred, you know, a, a century earlier. And it's um, ostensibly an essay about Dostoevsky and his novels, The Brothers Karamazov and, and, and such. But it's in, it's in his novels that he sees this character, and it's this kind of um, antinomian s- s- saint and sinner. He's, he's a poet, he's a drunkard, he's a criminal, he's a judge, he's a, a, a hero, he's a villain. Um, and uh, Russian women as well, you know, uh, a goddess and a whore or whatever. And it's this strange mix. And I guess the archetypal figure of this would be someone like Rasputin, um, who, I mean, there's a lot of myths and, and, and stories have accreted around Rasputin's uh, uh, life and all that. But uh, I mean, one of the earliest books, it's, you know, Rasputin, the holy devil. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, uh, the, the biker gang, the Hell's Angels, is the same kind of thing. This notion of the two opposites coming together, and uh, Dostoevsky has all these characters um, that somehow are able to embrace both sides. It's this kind of, uh, it's 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 calls it uh, this this kind of. Uh, uh, f- fearful sort of total sanctity, which uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's a kind of way in which you see everything as holy, but e- even violence, you know, even crime, even some kind of degradation and, and something of that sort. And um, it's not quite exactly the same thing, but, you know, in Dostoevsky's novels, I mean, this kind of humiliation, you know, um, th- this kind of masochism is, is, is a, often a way that uh, some of the characters transform and, 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 and become, you know, bigger uh, bigger selves and that kind of thing they, they 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 adopt a suffering and a punishment often for some crime they haven't committed or again you know crime and punishment um there you go i mean you, you, it's 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 really a thriller you know if you if you, you i mean dostoevsky was writing these things and paying off his gambling debts by you know each week for the for the newspapers and it's kind of like a page turner thriller and he uses this whole theme of murder you know to pose these ultimate kinds of questions, these ultimate yes or ultimate no. You know, if nothing is true, is everything permitted? Well, if that's the case, then I should be able to kill this nasty old, you know, pawnbroker lady here and and just take her money because I'm I'm a higher type and she's nothing. She's just an insect and he finds that he can't do it. But it's taking it to the edge. It's kind of taking things to the edge. It's this notion, again, like the Russians are just not lukewarm. You know, they're either it's either all or nothing. You earlier referred to uh, Olga, the uh, Russian queen who converted to uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, and and she herself is sort of an archetypal character, a a woman who seemed to be very devout and yet at the same time uh, committed many violent atrocities. Well, I guess I guess you. Have. It was a tough world back then. So yes, I mean, uh, well, I mean, there's the the stories uh, that. Some of these characters, they convert because they've sinned so much in the past. And uh, Christianity allows them a way, in some way, to redeem uh, for this bloody past they have. But uh, no, there's all these remarkable stories of, of uh, about her uh, uh, and um, this revenge she took for the murder of her husband and things of that sort, where, you know, she very coolly and um, uh, just uh, invites people to a, a feast or something like that. And then when they're all kind of drunk and everything, her guards come in and just, you know, slaughter them and things of that sort. And just it's, uh, again, yeah, it's like that. Or, or again, you know, you think of someone like Ivan the Terrible, who's another kind of cliched figure um, of the Russian tyrant. But he was, you know, he... Uh, uh, they say that terrible really means the dreaded, but still, uh, he, it, <laughs> terrible, <laughs> I think, fits uh, more, uh, more than more than once in, in you know his his choices. There's the story where he he walled in the Moscow's rival city, uh, Novgorod, 
which is traditionally seen to be a more liberal kind of progressive in Western terms sort of uh, Russian political system than, than the, than the uh, sort of czar and all that. Uh, but it, there was some perceived slight, you know, he, he felt that they had made, against, the city had made against him. And he walled them in and he slaughtered something like 40,000 people, you know. Uh, and, but when he left, when he abandoned, you know, Moscow and said, okay, I've had it. And uh, the people came after him. They, 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 you know, they followed him in droves and they begged him to return. And he did, um, only on his terms, which was absolute obedience, you know, to everything I say. I say in the book that he, he is a good example of what um, the British writer Colin Wilson called the right man, which is this kind of dominant alpha male who is incapable of ever admitting that he's wrong. I mean, that, that's true of many of us, I know, but there are some that it's even more true. <laughs> They're more right than, than we are. Uh, and, um, I, and Ivan the Terrible seems to be one of these characters. And he was like, as I say, unfortunately, it was the right man in the right place for him because he was able to um, exercise this complete dominance and control over, over the lives of all his people. And he sort of introduced the first um, kind of police state with the, with the Oprichniki, uh, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. But, yeah. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't he also the one who built the uh, St. Basil's Cathedral? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So you have these, yeah, it's uh, these tremendous um, expressions of violence and, 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 you know, just kind of evil, we would say, sadism. And then to atone for that, you have this fantastic, beautiful church being made, or, or some kind of penance, some kind of pilgrimage. You know, you walk barefoot, whatever, 50 miles or something somewhere. And again, going back, back tracking a little bit, um, with um, this whole pilgrimage was another central idea in, in the Russian um, psyche, uh, going on these incredibly long you know, journeys. I mean, Rasputin walked thousands and thousands of miles to get to Mount Athos, you know, in Greece, and he took a side trip to Jerusalem and things <laughs> like that. And um, and again, that the vastness of the Russian uh, land, the terrain, and somehow this notion of this kind of pilgrimage, just like straight line through it, that that to me gives a sense of the history as well, this kind of spatial sense. Okay, there's a journey you're making, and you're on the way to somewhere. The journey, so history, our life is. So, so, I mean, it's a you know, it's a it's 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 a metaphor or an analogy. It's made before, but our life is like a pilgrimage in the same kind of way. So, um, so that that those two things, the spatial and the temporal, seem to come together for me there. Now, in your book, you sort of describe two different Russian types. You, you talk about the new man who is rather materialistic, atheistic. I think they were promoted uh, during the communist era. Uh, but there's also the the more sentimental Russian type with with mystical inclinations. And uh, one thing that struck me is that there there's a way in which these two types of individuals come together. And I think I saw that in the description of uh, the the Russian cosmists who were quite influential. Yeah. Well, the the the, the new men um, start around the sort of the later part of the 19th century and. Uh, they are these very utilitarian, pragmatic, practical. Um, I mean, they're 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 kind of more West uh, than the Westerners, but they they they're tired of all the previous generation's romantic ideals. There's this notion of the beautiful soul, and this was supposed to be some individual character who had uh, become almost saintly, and um, he would uh, affect change by example. You know, he 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 would radiate a kind of goodness. 
that others would pick up and 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 follow and things of that sort. And uh, they just got uh, completely um, impatient with anything like that. And they saw the only way that anything was going to change, and what they and what was supposed to change, the central thing that was supposed to change was the plight of the serfs. The serfs were, you know, sort of like uh, slaves in America or uh, elsewhere, but uh, uh, in, uh, absolutely, you know, horrible. Uh, conditions, uh, and they were they were owned, you know, by the landowners and all that. And hundreds of years, the you know, the serfs needed to be freed and all that. And it just never got around to doing it. And um, so the new men just got completely tired of these old romantic notions, and they just said, you know, they ruthless, um, you know, people that are willing to do every, what was necessary in order to make the change. And um, yes, when the Bolsheviks, they they took quite a few uh, pages from the new men's uh, sensibility when they did it. And this whole idea of a kind of uh, elite, a revolutionary elite who were trained to take power and to hold it and, and all of that sort of thing. And, um, but yeah, I said this other, this other type, um, which is more mystical and has um, a sense of um, the grandeur and, and, and uh, mystery and awe and wonder of the universe is, uh, yeah, something there too. I mean, the cosmos were, uh, there's this remarkable character, uh, Fedor Fedorov, um, again, who's in the late 19th century, uh, and he was friends with Dostoevsky and Tolstoy respected him. And, um, he had this remarkable one single idea was he took the idea of the resurrection of the dead, literally, you know, from Christianity. Uh, not in some spiritual sense or um, some kind of transfigured sort of sense, but the idea that the he called it the common task, and this would, this would be something that would unite all the peoples of the earth. If, if we only recognize that um, somehow we owed it to the dead to find a way to bring them back to life, he didn't know how it would happen, but he realized that this would be the one idea that would unite everyone. And it sounds absolutely mad, you know, from from our perspective today. But he he said there should be a way to re recollect all of the particles, the dust particles of all the bodies that have you know decomposed over time, and somehow uh, to put them back together. And then, what, because there'd be so many more people alive, we'd have to go out and explore space because we'd have to find other planets uh, that were inhabitable because there'd be no more room on the Earth and all this. And I mean, the idea is just just open up and open up in this vast kind of uh, uh, cathedral. Of, of 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 kind of uh, visionary uh, a visionary future, and um, he is tangentially responsible uh, for the whole uh, Russian uh, space program. Uh, there was one of his uh, students, Silovsky, if I can't pronounce his name correctly right now. Uh, he um, was actually behind the early uh, Russian rocket um, science, as it were, and all that. And so, I mean, there's museums, uh, you know, uh, monuments and things of that sort um, uh, dedicated to these people. And uh, yeah, this was this remarkable vision of um, spreading out into the universe, spreading out in, in, in the farthest galaxy, this kind of Star Trek uh, sort of thing, or what we, you know, the anthropic universe uh, sort of notion, or I think it was Frank Tipler, but the whole idea of shooting out, you know, computers out into space or something like that. So yeah, the cosmos, they were thinking of that 100 years ago. Yeah, and Frank Tipler, incidentally, also writes about the resurrection of the dead inside of a computer. There you go. Well, there's only a few good ideas around, you know, they get a lot of variations on them, so, yeah. 
Well, I guess we really should touch on Russian parapsychology as as well. I know back in uh, 1970 or so, when the book Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain came out, uh, it was a bestseller, and, and frankly, it was one of the influences on me that, that uh, sort of provoked me to pursue a, an academic degree in parapsychology. Well, yeah, I mean, this was something that... Um was seemed to be a great revelation uh, when that book was published, and uh, there was a follow up to it as well. And then the whole idea with the curly in photography, and uh, I forget the the Russian uh, woman's uh, name who was the um, uh, telekinesis. So she had the PK. Nina Kalagana. That's right. Yeah, she was able yeah. to move. And and again, this was supposed to have been picked up by uh, the Russian uh, intelligence services, much like it was happening in, in the West as as well. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things about that that came out uh, uh, while I was writing a book was that uh, the Esalen Institute in California, that they had in the 80s, in early 90s, they had set up this sort of independent uh, cultural exchange program with like-minded people um, in Russia. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't through the government. So although I, I think at one point, you know, CIA and all these other sorts of people were, were involved in that. And, um, and they were meeting, I mean, I, Michael Murphy talks about how when he went there, um, he was meeting the same kinds of people that he, that would, he would, that would come to Esalen, you know, people interested in the spirituality and paranormal and all that sort of thing. But he said they were more out in the open. They were more sort of, uh, it wasn't regarded as, um, anything that strange. And, um, they, uh, there's this wonderful story about how Esalen was responsible for bringing Boris Yeltsin over to uh, the States. He didn't go to Esalen, but um, they kind of ferried him around, or representatives from Esalen ferried him around to different sorts of places, and he met, you know, different people. And I think he, he met Reagan, who was in the hospital, or NASA, or something like that. But there's um, a story where he basically he says, stop the car, I, 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 I want to go to an American supermarket. Because all my life I've been told that this is just propaganda. You know, these these wonderful shelves filled with all this kind of produce and everything. And I want to see for myself. And they said, yeah, sure. So they just pulled into some supermarket somewhere. And as they say here, he was gobsmacked. He couldn't believe it was true. And then apparently he said, we have, we have to take to another one. You know, <laughs> just make sure this one wasn't set up. And then uh, he was convinced that, you know, communism had been lying, uh, you know, to him all his life. And so uh, this was sort of the beginning of the end for the, uh, the USSR. So, uh, yeah, this, this interest in um, the parapsychology and the paranormal and human potential uh, that transcended national boundaries um, tangentially, in some way, had an effect that led to uh, a massive change in history. Gary, you've written a, a huge book. I think it's uh, over 450 pages, and we've just barely scratched the surface of of all the, the many important uh, thinkers that have come out of Russia and have, have touched on these things. Uh, all I can say is, you know, we'd have to do 10 more interviews to begin to, to, to cover it all. I want to encourage our viewers to uh, read your book, The Return of Holy Russia, uh, if, if they really want to go into depth and into the many diverse threads uh, that are available. But this has been a delightful conversation, and uh, I think we've, we've been able to give our viewers a good overview of uh, uh, the complexity of the Russian character. I, uh, one of the things that I so enjoyed about doing this book is that I, I knew just the tiniest bit about Russian history, mostly around you know the revolution. Um, and so it was all new terrain for me. And I just was absolutely fascinated uh, to find out um, everything about it. And so, uh, yeah, if uh, 
I, I think I put in the excitement of discovery in, in, into the into the writing of the book as, as well. So I hope, yeah, I hope, I hope people explore it and I hope uh, they find it uh, an enjoyable journey. Well, I'm, I'm sure they will. And I, you know, once again, want to highly recommend it. Uh, uh, I, I think uh, that it, it's probably your best book to date, as, as a matter of fact. It, uh, from my point of view, it takes your uh, literary powers to a whole new level. Oh, thank you so much, Jeffrey. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you for being with me, Gary. It's been a real pleasure. Me as well. Thank you. Spasibo. 